Welcome to Thrive Radio, expert visionary and innovative business, life, and relationship advice to live a life of doing the impossible with your host, Amy Montgomery. I'm your host, Amy Montgomery, entrepreneur and digital marketing agency owner. Today, my guest is Dr. Tara Kafori. She is the founder of River Educational Consulting and Child and Adolescent Transformative Specialist who helps parents, teachers, and administrators recognize and address mental health-related behaviors that prevent students from learning and thriving in an academic environment. She believes that all children and adolescents should be provided a safe, non-judgmental space to unpack and understand their feelings, learn strategies to cope in healthier ways, and build a new sense of inner strength to move through life with vigor. Dr. Tara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Amy, for having me. Yes. So can you share your journey with us? how you became a specialist, and why you chose to help children? Well, mine is a very strange and winding road to get here. I actually planned on always being a federal agent when I was growing up. I wanted to be in the FBI or DEA. And I then discovered that shortly after waiting for the admissions and the interviews for the federal government, I took a temporary teaching job as a substitute teacher. And found that that was just my niche and I really enjoyed it. And I then went on to get my teaching license and my certification in the state of Massachusetts. And I realized as I kept going in my advancement, because in Massachusetts in five years, you have to get your master's and then go on from there. I kept recognizing that we didn't have anything that helped our children learn social, emotional, mental health in addition to behavioral health. So we were expecting these teachers to have 26 to 30 unique children in a classroom with absolutely no or very little guidance as to how to address when a child is faced with trauma at home. We all knew that that exists. We all know that there's a 504 or IEP or, you know, different kinds of protocols in addition, or when we know that there's abuse at home, this is what we have to do. And this is our protocol, but we don't know how to address it on an everyday basis. And I found that even earning my dissertation, my doctorate, excuse me, and writing my dissertation, when I did the dissertation on self-harm and how schools address adolescent self-harm in within their environment, there was nothing in the advanced levels of education that addressed any of the topics that are necessary for us to address as far as mental health struggles, these to be specific, how to address suicidal ideation when we see it, how to address when we know that there's been abuse or possible assault at home and we don't have the skill sets. So what I ended up doing was really creating my own maverick position of merging education with mental health and behavioral health. So that's when I became more and more trained in how to address self-harm, suicide, addiction, abuse, how to address trauma. I wrote a few courses on addressing trauma in the classroom, what it really looks like. So it just kept becoming more and more of a journey for me that I'm really very grateful for. I didn't anticipate this journey for sure. I didn't know that this is where it was going to lead me. And I still don't know my future. I'm morphing again into addressing a lot of first responder guilt, a lot of first responder secondary trauma, a lot of military survivor guilt. I have clients who are former military that come home and 
are struggling mentally and emotionally with surviving back in the everyday world. Because I mean, think about it. It's like we talk about grief. When you lose a loved one, and I just recently lost my dad, like when you lose a loved one, you're looking around the street and saying, how can you all continue on with your life? Like I just lost this very big person and children feel that way as far as stress, which I can return to in a second, stress and anxiety, but military men and women and first responders say, do you not know what's going on around here? Like, how are you just going on with your days and you're laughing, you're smiling? So that has been a real adjustment for me to understand the different perspectives all over the place. And that's been an unexpected benefit slash struggle in this journey of mine. And again, I started out just with children and I've recognized that it's morphing into a lot more. I'm very grateful for every single step that I've had. It's come with growing pains, but it's also, it's been so worth it every single step. And the common struggles that are coming out of what I do in this journey is recognizing that I'm constantly needing to change and adapt and figure out one student might be struggling with anxiety and what that looks like for that one particular student. What does it look like for another student that might have different pressures at home in addition to the anxiety of school, in addition to fitting in socially? And then you throw in COVID and the recovery from COVID and you just have a completely different plate that for each and every child. So. It's been a journey for sure. <laughs> so in walking through your journey so far, what are you grateful for? I think the lessons that I've learned, the people that I've met, the individuals who have been so honest and open with me at their darkest moments, to be able to be trusted like that, I never would have thought that I would have been in this position in my life. And I'm very grateful for that. I am grateful for the lessons that I've learned, the education that I've had, both life experiences in the classroom. I'm very grateful that I have a very strong, supportive husband and two really wonderful kids that have acknowledged the fact sometimes I'm not always there for them, but I'm helping and being there for somebody else. And they all seem to understand and be grateful and understand the responsibilities that I have in this role. I'm very grateful for that. And again, like an extended supportive family, I have really great group of friends from all walks of life that just provide me with the support I need when I need to sometimes debrief and chill. I would say all that. And then wonderful people like you who help me spread the word of what I do and what we all need to do as a society. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> what are some of the common struggles you help children with? So right now, historically, I've helped with self-harm, the reasons why they are self-harming, self-hate, lack of self-worth, confidence. But what I'm noticing coming out of the last two years because of the COVID and the lockdown that we had, and then now coming back out into everyday society and everybody coming back onto the streets and driving and all that, I've dealt with a lot more anxiety and a lot more stress and loneliness, the effects of loneliness. So even when they're in a room full of people, they still feel invisible they feel alone. And those are the biggest challenge that I have right now that are going on. But the anxiety is off the charts at this point. And we expected that as mental health professionals, we've expected that up until Thanksgiving, that we we're going to see a, a rise in the anxiety levels of children because they're now back in school. September was still a little bit of an excitement. October, okay, we're starting to calm down. But November, it's really starting to hit. And I call it the third stage, the most uncomfortable stage, where they recognize, okay, we still have another few months of school. I don't like this many people. It's loud in the hallways. I'm not used to it after a year and a half of being home. And I don't like the food in the school. I don't like this. I don't like that. And, and we're finding that 
the uncomfortability, our children don't always have the skills to unpack it, to recognize their emotions. They don't have names for their emotions. And they also don't have coping strategies such as breathing or taking a second to just sit and allow their body to recognize what they're feeling and their heartbeat racing and their cheeks getting flushed. They don't have these skills yet to recognize their emotion. And then they don't have skills to calm themselves and regulate their emotions so that they're not ramping up and getting very anxious. Many don't think about trauma, like that a child would have trauma and that they might be facing that, especially if their home appears to be, you know, look normal on the outside and they just wouldn't think about it. So what are some of the signs a child is dealing with trauma? We go through our day and we just recognize, well, that's a little weird. That was a little weird. You said something a little weird. You did something a little weird. And if you start to pay attention, you'll be able to pick up on the red flags of trauma. You'll be able to realize that a person who is normally very active in a classroom setting, very confident in the material has slowly started to pull away. You know, you might want to investigate, just say that the material is getting harder or something else going on. You'll realize that, especially this happens a lot with teenage girls. All of a sudden, they wear a lot more bulkier clothes that seem to be larger in size. They'll shrink into them. It's almost like a body sensation. You can see it. They'll shrink into their clothing when they sit into a chair. They might sit a lot more with their hands like this or clothes like this, and they hunch over a lot more. That's evidence of trauma arriving, and they don't feel comfortable enough to have themselves open to the world, right? This is a very closed position versus a very open position. A lot of other, you might see it in their writing or their texting. They might start to say sentences that demonstrate a little bit of trauma. It might be that they don't want to go out anymore. They're not really interested in hanging out with friends. Very similar to what we expect for depression, they will see trauma. They'll also tend to have anger outbursts all of a sudden out of nowhere with very little provocation. They might start to, the teenagers call it popping off. They might just all of a sudden pop off for no reason. Somebody might say something to them and they don't take it funny. They take it pretty serious and then they start to yell or get aggressive and then walk out. There's a lot of flight that goes with trauma. People run. You'll recognize in academics, their academics will go down. They're suddenly not really invested in earning the grades that they may have previously earned. They don't care about handing in homework. They don't care about attending class. You'll notice that will come up. They might demonstrate use of drug use or alcohol use, whether or not in school or outside of school. You'll see their Instagram start to become a little bit what we call dark. They'll post a lot of memes that have negative connotation, whether it's referring to assault, whether it's referring to uncomfortability, whether it's referring to body dysmorphia or the opposite, they'll wish for certain things. So they'll post a lot about what love is supposed to look like or what behavior is supposed to look like or what a happy home looks like. So you'll see a lot of those signs. And then again, once you start talking, if you address the child and they all of a sudden either get really angry or they start to cry. Our body's natural reaction is either is an anger and sometimes it's angry cry, which is demonstrative of trauma for sure. So if I ask you like, is there anything that you need to tell me? Is there anything going on at home? And you start crying. That's a sure sign as well. Or you can say none of your business and you walk away and you get really intense. You'll know the difference between a teenager being a teenager, teenage like behavior and a trauma response automatically. You'll just feel that energy that's different. 
So how do you help children address some of the mental health struggles so that it doesn't inhibit their education? That is actually a very good question, a very deep question, because there's a lot of different strategies that I do in a common day based on the child that I'm addressing. So if I have a child, for example, I had a little while before we started our show, that is struggling really strong with anxiety. And the way that we talk about the anxiety together, first off, we have to address what the emotion is. That's the very first step. What is going on in her mind? What is going on in his mind? And what are the feelings that they have? What are the physical symptoms? Because remember, as much as society likes to separate mental health from behavioral health, from everyday living, et cetera, it's all connected. This is inside your body. So it's all connected. So what I do is first we walk through saying, what are we feeling for this individual girl this morning is she feels very intense anxiety where her chest feels like it's being ripped open. I ask her to describe it in forms of if you were an animal, what kind of animal would you be and why? She said this morning, a cat crawling out of her own skin, like trying to climb up the walls. And that gives me a pretty good picture as to how intense her feelings are. And once we identify what the feelings are, we identify how it affects her body. And then we can target strategies like maybe she needs to sit calmly against a cold wall on a cold floor with her legs spread out in front of her and just breathe for a few minutes while pushing her back against the wall. And that will take her body sensation. That'll take the fight or flight response down a little bit because not only are you adding temperature, but you're also adding stillness and stillness and temperature will help regulate a child's emotional response. And then for her, then we talk about how we can calm ourselves down, whether it's use of tapping, which I work with a lot of children that that use the tapping procedures, the six meridians of their tapping. It might be that we incorporate for one of my other children for anger management, we use two minute meditation, and then we do a positive statement about ourselves first. And then we discuss the emotions as disconnected to them as we possibly can, which means that I ask her for what emotions she's feeling. And then if she says anger, then we say, then we break it apart a little bit more. Is it more out of sadness? Is it more out of frustration? Is it more out of loss? Is it more out of abandonment and feeling alone? So we break that down a little bit more. And then each and every branch breaks out into each and every section. And by the time that she's done, She knows exactly what she's feeling and how deeply she's feeling. And then we can figure out how do we remedy that? How do we put a safety net in there? So does she have to go here and talk to this person? Does she have a list of five friends that she can call whenever she needs to that she feels safe with? Five friends or five people, for example. And that helps her feel comfortable, safe, and worthy of attention. So especially if she feels abandoned and alone, that will help them address their emotions, but also understand their emotions. And then they know, okay, it's on me to figure out how to solve it as well. Like when they're not with me, for example, self-harm and suicide are a little bit more extensive where you have to figure out what is causing the thoughts of ending a person's life, because that's not something that somebody arrives at very easily. It is not most often, unless there is, again, a diagnosed mental illness that could be more prone to thinking spontaneously and off the cuff, most individuals, it will be a succession that you'd be able to find. And you see yellow flags and red flags along the way that will say, oh, this is how we've gotten to that point. But for a person who is thinking of the purposeful destruction of skin or body parts 
that takes intention and that takes hurt and pain. So my job then is to try to figure out where we got, like how we got there and what the purpose of the self-harm is. Is it to make you feel something because you feel like you're a zombie and you're not feeling anything? Or is it that you're feeling too much and you need to release? And if that's the case, what are some strategies, like whether or not we use different coping strategies, whether or not we use different methods to mimic the self-harm, but you're not actually doing it. Like we have a pretty spiked roll. It looks like pin, like a baking roller, Mm -hmm. and it has spikes on the end of it that are plastic. So you push onto it and it gives a sensation of harming. So we can offer alternatives like that, that allow you to still feel that sensation that you are desperate to feel, but you are not harming your own body at that point, but you are moving through because we're not getting over it, which is a very bad phrase. We are moving through that temporary feeling of the need to hurt ourselves to either feel something or feel nothing at all. When it comes to suicide, we have to be even more vigilant at finding where we can support that individual, where I can address the feelings, get really deep dive into where they felt that ending their life is the only option, that all they see is that answer and they don't see anything else. It's just this answer. So the struggles that we do every single day is individualized that we address every day is individualized. It depends on the child. What is their threshold? So I have to do a lot of one-to-one conversations that are uncomfortable that every avenue of, is it a family life? Is it a school life? Is it internal? Is it your brain? Is it feelings of worthiness? It really is like detective work. Yeah. I really like that, that you're actually helping them process these emotions and being that skill when they don't have it. Right. Yeah. So many of our children right now are facing a lot of trauma from the pandemic. What are some of the ways that you're helping and how can parents and teachers and others help the children right now? Well, I think actually it's multi-leveled anyway, where adults are struggling just as much as the children. The children are just more vocal. There was an article written last week from the New York Times, and it was about a former homicide detective who retired, but came back to help with cold cases and has seen the rise in rage, not only on petty crime, but on murders and violent crimes beyond that. And she directly linked it to effects of COVID. And I think she's accurate. I think when you are alone in your home, hopefully it's a sanctuary for many, but not always for everyone. But when you are alone for a good amount of time, there's several different comparisons I can make. Like the best one I can make, especially for some of our children, they felt like they were cast away, like Tom Hanks's movie, where they were all by themselves for a really long time and they stared at a screen for a little while, but they weren't able to have the physical three-dimensional sensation of another person. You know how you can feel another person right next to you. If somebody's standing too close, you feel that sensation, that invisible matrix. Well, that was missing for a long time for a lot of people. So here you are cast away on your own Island for a while, only connected by a screen. And maybe those people that are in your loved ones, and maybe you liked the people that you were cast away with, and maybe you didn't. So you spend a whole bunch of time alone in your room on a computer or texting or whatever it is that you did. And now we're throwing you back into life. 
And now we're saying, okay, especially those who have big high schools, we have a thousand kids in the hallway after having no kids in a hallway besides that one child, right? So I compare it to not only the castaways now thrown back into society, and I don't know if you've ever seen Castaway, but when Tom Hanks leaves the island and is rescued, and then he sleeps in a hotel room, he can't sleep in the bed. He has to sleep on the floor. His adjustment was so far beyond and so slow from him reintegrating into society that it took him sleeping on the floor and then wearing very different clothing from when he left and was shipwrecked. That's what I compare society right now. Or I also compare it to imagine going into the supermarket and everything is clear and you're used to going down the aisles, but then you go down the bread aisle and everyone is in the bread aisle. How are you going to maneuver through? It feels very anxious, very tight, very uncomfortable. You've had your brain one way for 18 months or 12 months or however many months that you were basically in lockdown or even still with masks on and everything that came with COVID that now we're throwing you into life and we're saying, okay, brain, even though you've been calmed down or you've been regulated and you've been not stimulated as much, I'm going to throw you into a hallway of a thousand children with these loud noises and a bell ringing and kids moving here and there and books dropping and somebody's yelling and teachers are moving around and doors are closing. So all of these, we've over stimulated these children in a very short amount of time. And we are expecting them just to go back to life because adults are pretending, and I'm using the word pretending, the adults are pretending that they're back to life without any effects. Whereas adults, there's way more road rage. There is a lot more insensitive things being said to each other. There is a lot more tempers flaring, a lot more fighting in homes. Even the most happy of homes have noticed an increase in frustration and tension. Divorce rate has gone up extremely high. In the last few months, all the divorce lawyers that I know have reported their phone ringing off the hook and they, and the courts are not really open. So people are getting frustrated. Like why are they still married? They should be divorced. And so there's a lot that we're just not even recognizing and we're losing first responders to suicide. They are just overwhelmed. So these numbers, I mean, it is a trickle down effect that we have noticed, but children are our greatest barometer because they're showing us what's going on because they don't know any different to hide it. They just show it. Yeah. That's amazing. It's so true. And I think even in my own situation, I've only seen three people since COVID half started in person (laughs) because I've worked at home and I've tried to do events. I run several like uh, Facebook groups where we would normally have events and things and nobody would attend. Yeah. I even have the power to create events, but nobody is wanting to go. And I think, you know, it's that combo of, again, being so used to being by yourself. And then combined with, yeah, I do want to connect with other people, but maybe just one person. Right. <laughs> you know? and, right. There's not always all bad that come out of this. I think we're learning a lot about ourselves. We're learning a lot about emotional regulation. We're learning a lot about mental health and we're starting to really take it seriously. I'm praying that healthcare world really takes this seriously, especially insurance, because they don't seem to be changing that much. They give a little bit, but they need to change a lot more so that we have a lot more access to emotional health and behavioral health for our children and adults. 
you know, and I also think friendships were tested and you got to recognize who was in your corner at the end of the day and who really made time and effort even to have Zoom conversations or having wine together or reading a book together, like book clubs thrived during COVID. And that was a great thing. Everybody was on their screens sharing their book. There's all of that that I think was a positive that came out of COVID. So what are some of the best ways for parents to contribute to help not just their own children, but also support other children that may be dealing with mental struggles around them? Well, I think for a lot of the parents, I think we don't recognize when our children are hurting We're so busy that we're not paying attention to the emotions of our children. We're almost allowing them to go back straight upstairs to their room and do their homework by themselves. And we're not taking the time to really slow down and tell them how we feel about them and that we're proud of them and really mean it. Children can understand when you are giving them false praise. They really do pick up on that. But if you're really taking the time out to ask your children, not only just how their school day is, but what's been going on break down the classes in and of themselves, but also to break down how they're feeling, ask them about their friend. You might get a teenage answer that just says, stop talking to me. But at the same time, really showing that they're invested, making time for your children. We have like, for example, Friday nights, we have a tradition where we order pizza from the same pizza place and we choose a movie to watch together. And so either this week is my week. So we might watch the movie tag, but next week might be my older daughter's time to choose a movie. And that is specific carved out time that we make a conscious effort to stay and watch the television together and have dinner together. I think the reinvention of the family dinner is huge as a way to help children, because you'll find out a lot once you're all sitting there repeatedly night after night you'll find out that they'll begin to trust you again. Cause right now teenagers, they don't really trust their parents because they think their parents are going to make fun of them or they don't want to tell them about their life and their friends because they might butt in, but showing them repeatedly that you are there, that you are open to having a conversation, you're going to hear things. And that's the biggest thing that I can say to parents. You're going to hear things that you don't agree with, or you're going to hear things that you don't like. Your children should not be rude and disrespectful to you. And that's where your boundaries should be. You should teach them that respect level, but you do need to be open to hear when you are hurting their feelings, when you are doing something that might offend them, or if you might be overstepping your boundary and you stop and you think, okay, I can see their point. I can take their perspective. Again, if it's a health concern, that's it. You're a parent. That's where it goes. But I think as far as what you can offer your children, a listening ear, an active listening ear, not having your phone with you, not having anything else going on, and just looking your children in the eye and having the conversations and spending time with them. That's all they really want. They don't need the fancy stuff. They just need time and hugs. Hugs go a long way. Even teenagers. They like hugs and then just being open to hear. Even if you don't hear, you got to regulate your emotion. Even if you don't hear what you want to hear or you hear something that's disappointing, regulate your emotion. They are learning from you and they are learning to trust you. You have to regulate and stay calm, stay together, because if you meet their frustration, their anger with frustration and anger, nobody wins. Yeah, definitely. So what are some of your client success stories? 
I actually have one child that actually worked her way off of a mood stabilizer, which with the way that we did the full holistic health. So we handled diet, we handled exercise, we handled academic support, we handled behavioral strategies and coping strategies, and we handled how to regulate our emotions. And we just did it with increasing care as she decreased her medication. So she had chosen, she made this goal that she wanted to come off her medication. And we planned this out for six months and did work along the way to meet that goal. It was fast. Six months is sometimes fast, you know, but for her, that was her goal. That's where she wanted. And that's where we worked to. And today she's a year and a half off of medication and she's still doing the processes that we put in place for her. And she's finishing up her senior year this year. She'll finish up her senior year and hopefully go on to college. That's her goal. I have another successful, it was an adult who reintegrated from the military. So pretty intense action, I guess you could say, missions overseas and had a lot of survivor guilt. So working through that, we're still working through it, but working through that has been a challenge. But before he was very isolated, he did not want to venture out. He was angry at the everyday person, especially when the whole Instagram hate against the Karens, (laughs) that movement of hating a Karen, that was tough for him because he saw it like he gave a lot and people gave their lives to, to fight for the rights that everyday people have and take for granted. That's been a long, hard road for him. And he still has a lot more to do, but he's been able to channel it and help out organizations like the Home Base Foundation in Boston and Charlestown. He's been able to raise money for wounded soldiers. And that's a really great success story. And then another adult I had struggled with severe anxiety and would cry and couldn't really motivate herself to do much, but spent a lot of time feeling like I was happy then. And why am I not happy now? You know, we had worked through, we did have a protocol for medication. We did have therapeutic interventions. We did have coping strategies. We did have breathing strategies and that she is now a happy individual where she recognizes that it's going to be an ebb and flow, but she knows how to move herself through the downward spirals and lives a healthy, successful life. Amazing. So what do you think has been your truth that has gotten you this far in your journey? To keep growing, keep evolving, keep learning, never set myself in stone. And if you were able to give yourself one piece of advice when you first started your journey, what would it be? Buckle up. (laughs) I have to make sure that I'm not pouring from an empty cup that I have to make sure that I keep myself together and keep myself filled first before helping another person. And I'm struggling. That is a struggle for me. Those two together keep evolving and not setting myself in stone, but also make sure that I'm breathing, make sure that I'm taking my time, make sure that I'm pulling back when I need to. Yeah. I like that. I think that's a struggle for many of us. Definitely. (laughs) So if there are people that are listening that would love to get a hold of you to work with you, what's the best way to contact you? I would go on river educational consulting's website. If you just enter in Google river educational consulting, it'll come up. It also has my telephone number and other ways to reach me as well. Perfect. And I'll put all those links down below. Dr. Tara, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your expertise in a time when so many need it. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Emmy. Yes. And if you're listening and you want more information about our podcast and upcoming shows, you can visit a call to thrive.com. Thank you everyone and have a wonderful week.